All right, let's take our Bibles and turn back to John chapter 4. We read John chapter 4 all the way down through verse 42 for our scripture reading. I'm only going to read verse 10 in preparation of the message, although we will be addressing in general this whole chapter as we go through. There is probably no greater urgency this day, and what I mean by this day is this generation, than truly knowing the power of God in salvation through Jesus Christ. I suppose that today there is more misunderstanding of the gospel. There's more misunderstanding on who Jesus is. There's more misunderstanding about what the gift of God is than perhaps in our nation than ever before. It is just chaos and confusion out there when it comes to what surely should be seen as the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in John chapter 4 and in verse 10, Jesus responds to the Samaritan woman in this way. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The significance of this passage here in John chapter 4 is that this account happens very early in our Lord's three-year ministry. What has gone on previous to this... It's really not a lot of truth and information, certainly not as much as we would desire to have, but John the Baptist and Jesus have been born, Jesus being the incarnate Son, John the Baptist being the forerunner of the Lord. Jesus has been presented to the Lord in the temple on his eighth day of life. Sometime under two years of age, the Magi had visited, and of course Herod sought to kill all the children two years and under. And because of that danger, the family had fled to Egypt, but has now returned. And at 12 years of age, lo and behold, guess where Jesus is? He is there in the temple, And he is listening and asking questions of the scribes and the Pharisees. I would have loved to have been, as it were, a little fly there, listening to what this 12-year-old incarnate son of God was asking these men. But they were shocked at his questions, and evidently they were asking him questions, and they were shocked at his answers. 12 years old in the temple, but in the meantime, he had been so emerged in that engagement that his parents, thinking that he was with the rest of the family, had already left and gone at least a full day's journey away. What would you do if all of a sudden you found out one of your children is missing? Well, they panicked and they returned back into Jerusalem and they couldn't find him and finally they find him in the temple and Jesus looks at 
Mary and maybe those who were with her and says, you should have known where I was at. <laughs> now that's an interesting statement because that it does imply that Jesus <clears throat> was at least communicating to some measure to or degree, at least in his behavior, that he was to be about the Father's business. And they should have known that of the Lord even at age 12, and so the first place they should have looked was where? Was the temple. But it was actually the last place that they looked. John the Baptist begins his ministry. He ends up baptizing Jesus, recognizing Him as the Messiah. And from that point on, John the Baptist's popularity and ministry begins to decrease Jesus' ministry begins to increase. And and Jesus leaves that baptism and is actually driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Forty days, forty nights without food and drink. And the Bible says that the tempter came to him in all his strength when his hunger was, as it were, twisted within him. He was at the very depths of hunger, and the tempter comes to him and says, since you're the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. That would have been a great natural temptation to take care of the body over the Lord. He passes that and comes back in the power of the Spirit. And he conducts his very first miracle in the region of Galilee. He conducts that miracle in Cana of Galilee. And you know what that miracle was? He actually turned the water there into wine. Shortly after that, he leaves Cana of Galilee and he returns to the city of Jerusalem. And upon his return to Jerusalem, he goes in and he cleanses the temple. This is the first of twice that he cleanses that temple. He cleanses the temple and has a meeting with a man who we know of as Nicodemus, the chief ruler of the Jews. He leaves that meeting and he is returning back into the region of Galilee. And you'll see that in John chapter 4 and verse 3. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now between the region of Judea and the region of Galilee was a region that was known as Samaria. And so the scripture says, verse 4, that he had to pass through Samaria, or as the King James says, he must needs go through Samaria. Now of course you could look at that in one of two ways. You could look at it in, of course, if Judea is here and Galilee is here, and in between is Samaria, well, to go from Judea to Samaria, you have to go through, uh, to go through here to Galilee, you have to go through what? You have to go through Samaria. Or you could look at it as is popularly preached, that he must needs go through Samaria because there is a woman whom he is to meet by the well. That walk from Jerusalem 
to Sychar was about 30 miles. Depending on how fast that you would walk and depending on the popularity and the crowd slowing him down, which at this point he could have been slowed down significantly or at this point he could have just been made free because it was early on in his ministry. To go that 30 miles would have taken somewhere between 10 to 12 hours of walking. I remember when I was a young man in the Boy Scouts, I had earned a hiking badge and I had to, for my last requirement, I had to hike 20 miles. It took me all day. It took me eight hours or more to walk that 20 miles. So for him to walk that distance 10 or 12 hours certainly would have caused weariness. If I was to ask you, could you walk 30 miles today? <clears throat> you would probably say, are you crazy? I am an American, I take cars. <laughs> 30 miles of walking. And he arrives there, the Bible says in verse 6, about the sixth hour. Now you could read that in one of two ways. You could look at that time frame from a Jewish perspective and that would have placed him there around noon. Or you could look at it, which is the way I take it, and John frequently does this. He is speaking not in Jewish time, but in Roman time. In Roman time, that would have put it about 6 p.m. In, in the late afternoon, early evening. One of the reasons why I take it as 6 p.m. is because if you're walking 10 to 12 hours, now he could have split it up into two days, right? But if you're walking 10 or 12 hours, if you're going to be there at noon, you would have had to have left somewhere around midnight the night before. So I take it he would have left early in the day when it was cooler. And he would have traveled all that day, a long day by foot, to that well. And as he got to the well, the Bible says in verse 6, he was wearied from his journey. I suppose not only did he have bodily fatigue, he himself would have been thirsty. He would have been hungry. In other words, there would have been bodily needs that would have need to be addressed. And what we see here with our Lord is His full humanity. God, of course, neither gets weary nor tired nor thirsty. But as a man, the Lord Jesus Christ certainly experienced all the natural things of life that would have been part of the curse. He experiences this weariness. And so he stops there by the well. The well from Sychar, the well would have been some distance away from where this woman lived. And when I say some distance, I'm thinking, I didn't look to see the exact mileage, but I'm thinking a mile maybe. 
maybe a half mile, maybe a mile and a half. She would have had to carry her water pot outside of the city to go to this well <clears throat> to get her water for the evening and early for early the next day. This woman comes there and Jesus says to her, Give me to drink. Now today in America, an American woman would have said, Get it yourself. <laughs> but in his day, and especially this woman being a Samaritan, recognizing Jesus' garment and perhaps his ethnicity, she would have understood that he was a Jew and he was a man. And so he asked her, says, give me to drink. And the reason why he asked this woman to give him to drink, we know the reason, but the superficial reason is given to us in verse 8, and that is because the disciples had left the Lord by himself and gone into the town to what? To buy food. So under normal circumstances, who would have given him to drink? The disciples. One of the disciples would have drawn the water and offered it <clears throat> to Lord. This woman was at utter disbelief that Jesus would have asked her, actually commanded her to give him a drink from this well. And the reason why she was in utter disbelief about that is because <clears throat> she was a woman and she was a, she was a Samaritan. Now, if you know your Bible history, the Samaritans <clears throat> actually came to set up an alternative worship area under Jeroboam. And that region began to worship at another location than Jerusalem. And of course, we know that Jeroboam set up false worship in that day. You can go back in the book of Kings and observe this. He actually borrowed from Moses. When Moses went up to the mount, Aaron was down in the valley. Aaron set up this false worship, had the golden calf there. And it says, Behold, a feast to Jehovah. This was the exact words that Jeroboam used when he set up the false worship in the region of Samaria. The Jews, because of that, separated themselves from the Samaritans. And for good reasons, because God had not sanctioned worship in that area, right? So they separated from them. And you'll notice in verse 9, she says to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? And here John gives the understanding for this, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now this, this fact, this truth, they have no dealings with the Samaritans probably did not mean they had no dealings in any area. Now why do I say that? I say that because the disciples had gone into a city in Samaria to buy to buy food, and that would be dealing, wouldn't it? They would go in, find the food, bargain for the price, take the food, bring it out. So when we're talking about dealings, I think at least from a scriptural perspective, we have to understand 
that the Jews having no dealings with the Samaritans probably referred to a religious separation and perhaps even a separation in the use of vessels. So this woman having a water pot, a Samaritan water pot, Jesus having nothing to draw with, she would have had to draw out of her pot, right? And bring up the water and offer him to drink. And in that regard, the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So this really was an amazing situation. In fact, the disciples are going to come back and they're shocked. They're shocked that Jesus is talking with this Samaritan woman. Jesus answers her question. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? He answers that question in verse 10 by addressing the reason she's there. Why is she there? She's there because she has thirst. Now in saying that, I'm not saying that at that point she's utterly famished in her thirst. She's probably coming there because it's the time for her to come there and to draw up water for the evening and early morning. But she wouldn't be there if she did not know that she had thirst, right? And he says to her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, Implying she what? She doesn't know the gift of God. And if you knew who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now brethren, when I, when I read something like this, I'm thinking to myself, You just asked me to give you a drink. But now you're telling me that you can give me living water. Now, I think the reason why she said that is because the word living could be used in the sense of living water, in the sense of bubbly water. In other words, the water's not stagnant, it's moving, right? It's living, as it were. And I think perhaps that's what she's saying, she's thinking, because she's going to turn around and ask him and say, look, you don't have anything to draw with to get this living water. But folks, what I want us to understand here is that our Lord is addressing her true need. And I want to ask you at this point, do you know your true need this morning? Do you and I understand that the bodily needs that we have point to a higher being 
that can give us permanent satisfaction of those needs. You've often heard of people using food as we call it this, comfort food. You ever heard that phrase? Okay. Why do, why do they do that? They say, well, when a person's under a lot of stress, they go to foods to what? To comfort them. But they're missing their true spiritual hunger. Everybody see what I'm saying? Okay. They're under that stress and they're looking for relief from that stress, but they don't look to the one who's the bread of life. They look to things that are physical, the things they can control, the things that they can get to deliver them from this stress, to comfort them. Some people you know, when they're under stress, they go to drink. They go to alcohol. Or they go to parties. Or they go to friends. Or they go to television. Or they go to media. Or they go to music. All of these things are things that are of this life. And here's the thing, brethren. They're all temporary. But the fact that we have those needs should point us to those things that are eternal. But we misread them. We misread them. Do you know hunger? You should. Doesn't the Scripture say, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for what? Do you have that thirst? Do you have that hunger? Because we have a promise there in that beatitude that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, guess what? He will what? He will fill you. Well, folks, if you're filled with food, you no longer hunger for that which you're hungry for. Or if you're filled with drink, you're no longer thirsty anymore for that which you're thirsting for. And folks, when someone comes to Christ, the first thing they have to experience is thirst. Not thirst like a casual type of thirst. They have to know hunger. In other words, folks, they've got to know what they need, right? And they've got to desire it and hunger for it. It's not, I could take it or leave it. And so our Lord addresses her thirst. And then He asked her that question, if you knew the gift of God, 
Now this is amazing because this woman evidently does have some religious background, doesn't she? Because later on she's going to ask him about what subject? The subject of worship. She has some religious background in spite of her background. And yet she does not know the gift of God. And so folks, I want to ask you secondly, not only do you know your thirst, are you thirsty? Not only do you know your hunger, are you hungry? Not only do you know your blindness, but do you desire to see? Do you really know the gift of God? Millions of people do not know the gift of God today. First of all, brethren, whatever the gift is, where does it originate? It originates from God. It's not on this earth. It's not in this well. It's not in going to the marketplace and having fullness of food on your table. It's not having a retirement account. It's not having the insurances. It's not having your whole life in order. It's not trying to good works outweigh your bad works. It's not doing good for your neighbor or paying your bills. This is of not of you. It is of who? It's of God. This is of God. Do you know that? Because folks, if you don't know that it is of God, you're not going to go to God for Him to satisfy your thirst. And you're not going to go to God to satisfy your hunger. You're not going to go to God and say, Heal me, I can't see. No, you're going to come up with all kinds of ways to save yourself. And here's another obstacle in people's minds. It's a gift. Now, I don't think that he means here like a Christmas gift. I think what he means here is this, that this need in this context of living water, this need of this woman can only come from where? God. And it can only come to her Apart from works. It is graciously given to her. Do you know about this gift? And here's the reason why I ask, brethren. This woman does have some religious background, doesn't she? But Nicodemus was a chief ruler of the Jews and he didn't know it. He didn't know it either. Here is Nicodemus. This man is learned, isn't he? He could quote his Bible. This man was powerful. 
He was a chief ruler of the Jews. He was respected in his community. I am sure, materially, financially, economically, he was well taken care of. He was theologically trained. And he was of the strictest party of the Jews. He wasn't a liberal. He wasn't a progressive. He was, I'm going to put it in quotes, he was a Bible-believing separatist. And that's good. And he did not know the gift of God. And folks, you know that because Jesus turned to him and said, you're a a chief ruler of the Jews and you don't know this? So folks, can can we grow up and attend a Bible preaching, Bible practicing assembly and not know the gift of God? The answer to that is yes. But folks, it is equally true that you could be like this woman. Morally outcast. How many husbands has she had? Five. And she's committing acts of adultery with a man who's not her husband. She was uneducated. Certainly she had no prominent position in her community. She would have been looked down upon with just a superficial understanding of the Samaritan religion. Nicodemus did not know the gift of God and this woman did not know the gift of God. But both needed the gift of God. Do we hear that? Both of them. And we know the end of the story that Nicodemus walks away, at least initially, unbelieving. The woman walks away Believing. That's a great contrast, isn't it? So brethren, I can't stand before you and you should not in your family stand before your family and just assume that because they've been raised in a Bible-believing church and because they have mouthed certain things with their mouth that they truly know the gift of God. And folks, if I'm going to sum up the gift of God, it would sum up in this way. It's life. Did you notice how the adjective to the word water is what? Living. It's living. It's knowing, as John's going to say in John 17, 3, it's knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. It is life. 
So the very first thing we have to know in order to be saved is to know our own hunger and our own thirst. And we have to understand what the true gift of God is, that it is a gift and it is from God. And here's the third thing that we have to know. Who it is who says this. And folks, again, here's where people trip up. They think that the one who is saying this is the pastor or the preacher. In other words, they think it's just another who. It's just some other man. It's just some other person's opinion. And my opinion can be just as good as what? It's their opinion. And folks, I've said this before. If a man is preaching, and in his preaching he is reflecting what the text is actually saying, it is as if Jesus Christ Himself is voicing this to you. And your response to that messenger is a response to the Savior. Do we understand that? I've often thought about this passage when I fly, and you know, when you fly an airplane, you have a captive audience right there next to you. And I've often thought, as I brought up conversation with the person sitting next to me, Sometimes I would think to myself, if you just knew who's talking to you. (laughs) Nothing special in myself, but a messenger from God is sitting next to you. And they don't know, right? And folks, this woman needed needed to know her hunger and her thirst. She needed to know where to get it satisfied. She needed to know that it was a gift from God. She needs to know who is speaking to her. The Word made flesh. And folks, it is interesting that he says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked who? God? No, you would have asked the one who said to you, give me to drink. In other words, she would have known that the person who says, give me to drink and I can give you living water, she would come to know that He's the one that can give it to her. Why? He's God in human flesh. Folks, that really is amazing, isn't it? And when I read things like this, I think to myself, why can't I talk like this? (laughs) Why do I stumble around trying to get an audience with people? And folks, one answer to that is, 
I'm not mature enough, right? But another answer to this is, this is the unique man, Jesus Christ our Lord. Because, folks, did you notice this? He knew what her response would be. Right? Look at the passage. If you knew the gift of God, all right, if she comes to understand the gift of God, and if she comes to know who it is who says to you, give me to drink, what does the Lord say? You would have, you would ask of me. He knows what her response is going to be. And folks, we don't know that, right? <laughs> he does know that response. Now what the woman does not understand is the nature of this living water. What is the nature of this living water? Well, <clears throat> she asked, verse 11, Sir, <laughs> she's being respectful, right? Sir, you have nothing to draw with. That's why you asked me to give you a drink. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Some people project it's anywhere from 30 to 100 feet. Just think that's 3 to 10 stories or more. You have nothing to draw with. Well, where are you going to get that living water? Are you going to dig another well? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, the answer to that is what? Yes, he is greater than our father Jacob, but she doesn't know that. Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? So the Lord's got her attention, right? She does know that she has a thirst. And she does know that she has this curiosity about this living water. And so our Lord teaches her this. Verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him shall never what? Shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become where? In him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now folks, do you think she understood what he said? No. I don't think so. But I do think that she does begin to understand this, that whatever Christ is offering, it's in sharp contrast to the water that is in Jacob's well. Right? In other words, what is this contrast? Well, <clears throat> physical water only will satisfy your thirst temporarily. And we all know that, don't we? You take the water, you take it into the body, it enters your body in limited amounts. In other words, you don't have a fire hose, right? When you go for a drink of water, you don't go down the fire station and say, turn on the fire hose. 
you would drown. It comes to you in limited amounts. In contrast to this living water. Because the living water is not temporary. Right? You drink of Jacob's well, you're going to what? You're going to thirst again. But if you, if you take of this living water, you're not going to thirst for any other water ever again. Brethren, this living water <clears throat> will provide a deep, permanent satisfaction in your soul. And where is it going to give that satisfaction? Folks, this is very important. Inside of you. Jesus is not talking about satisfying your bodily need, is He? He's talking about satisfying not bodily thirst, but the thirst of your soul. And this is exactly what he said to Nicodemus. He told Nicodemus he had to be born again. Didn't he? This living water is associated with a birth inside of a fallen human being. And folks, once that living water, once this is birth inside of a person it will continually flow and satisfy that person into eternity. One commentator said, it will neither be dried up in this life nor in the life to come. So does the woman see a contrast? She does see a contrast. Does she really fully understand? No, she doesn't fully understand. But she does see this contrast. And so what happens at this point is what should happen to anyone who recognizes genuine thirst, who desires to see that soul thirst satisfied, who understands the gift of God, who knows the person who can give it to them, and who allows that person to draw them to himself. So she says to him, verse 15, give me this water. Does the woman know her need? She does know to some superficial understanding of her need. But she thinks, this is what she's thinking at this point, she thinks that her being satisfied would deliver her from ever having to track from the city to the well and carry this heavy water pot and folks, water's heavy, isn't it? You fill up that water pot, you gotta carry it, you gotta carry it back. She thinks, now look, 
this this man's opera, I, I'm going to call his bluff here. This man's saying, I can have this water and would keep me from coming here. And folks, I want to encourage you that sometimes we say, we say about our witnessing, well, they're never going to understand what I'm saying. Well, of course not. <laughs> but in their misunderstandings, it gives you an opportunity to provide more what? More teaching. So she says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way out here to draw. That sounds very American, doesn't it? Give me this Jesus that can give me pay raises. Give me this Jesus so I don't have to work hard anymore. Give me this Jesus so I can go out and worship in the woods now. Give me this Jesus, good fire insurance, keeps me from going to hell. You don't fully understand the gift yet. This gift, Jesus does take her seriously. Give me this water. But there are two issues. These are big issues that have to be addressed. One, he has to create in her a proper thirst. She thinks her thirst is only what? Physical, Physical or bodily. In order to create that thirst, she has to know her sin. She has to know her sin. Folks, you have to know your sin you will never know it's a gift. A gift is something undeserved. You have to know how unlike God you are. And that you would never be like Him. The requirement to enter into heaven is perfection. Can anybody do that? Even the most vile of sinners will tell you, nobody can do that. She has to know her sinfulness in order to create a proper thirst. And then she has to understand why. She has to understand the nature of the worship that God desires. And folks, again, those two things are missing in general in our churches today. When you think about issues like the worship wars, and they all deal around physical things, drums, guitars, places on the stage, order of services. And people don't know their sin. And folks, here, here, here is a big stumbling block. People, especially children, people will come to Christ 
only because they don't want the penalty. Now, as far as that goes, that's great. But what you'll find in the Scripture is that when a person really says, I want to come to Christ because I don't want to go to hell, you will find that the Lord, through the Word, needs to do some additional work. Because they need to know why they're going to hell. I don't need to be saved from just the penalty of going to hell. I need to be saved from the root of going to hell. And that is my what? My sin. And today, many professing Christians have no desire to be saved from their sin because they think they're safe because the penalty has been removed. But the source of the problem you're not being delivered from. So what does our Lord do? Isn't this very gentle? Go, call your husband and come here. Now folks, did Jesus know that she didn't have a husband? He did know that. Not only did He know that she didn't have a husband, He knew she had had how many? Five. That's a lot of husbands. But He just didn't say that. He didn't say, you're a wicked, ungodly sinner, you fornicator. He said, go, call your husband, and come here. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus commends her truthfulness. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, well, you're not entirely correct. He said, you're right. You have no husband. You've had five. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. You said this truly. You have said this correctly. This is the truth. Now folks, what that does in this woman is it does something that you and I in America probably wouldn't have happened, but here in the Middle East it does. It immediately elevated this man at the well from being a man, he's got to be a prophet. Did you hear the move? Up to this point, she's just talking to him like one-on-one. And folks, what Christ is doing, she has to know who He is. He's taking her, she's making a logical deduction We know by the gift of the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but she comes to understand, verse 19, Sir, I've come to this understanding. You're just not an ordinary man asking me for water. You've got to be a prophet. And folks, a prophet is someone who represents God to man. So 
So has he pointed out her sinfulness? Yes. And is he not beginning to elevate who he is? And so, a natural question comes up in her mind. And that is, what is worship? Now, she doesn't think of it that way. She just enters into a type of religious controversy. And folks, when you're witnessing with people, you know that that's what they do. (laughs) And folks, I don't want to be too dismissive of that. Sometimes I've thought to myself, well, you're just trying to divert from the main subject. But sometimes their question really... They're asking it because this is the real obstacle in their life. The woman says, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, a mountain in Samaria. But you people, now notice the way that comes across. You people, you Jewish people, say that it's in Jerusalem that that's the place where men ought to worship. And that is a hot potato question. But our Lord understood two things about that question. It dealt with her understanding of the Scriptures And it dealt with a misunderstanding of what worship is. And so our Lord says to her, verse 21, Woman, believe me. This is going to be hard to believe. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain, that is in Samaria, nor where. Wow. Wow. Will you worship the Father? Now think about that statement. Now you understand why she has to say, Believe me, I'm going to tell you something. But he doesn't back off. Folks, he doesn't, he doesn't lower the heat of the answer because he says in verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship, we who? Jews. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the who? In other words, folks, what he's saying here is this. There's coming a day, and it's now, were the forms and the shadows that were typified in that Mosaic covenant are going to end. And you have a misunderstanding of of worship because you think your fathers taught you that it's in this mountain. But that mountain in Samaria is not divinely sanctioned by God through the Scriptures. Does everybody see that? The Scriptures say to worship where? In Jerusalem. So folks, does he back off from the answer? 
He doesn't say, well, if I really answer that question, it's going to offend her because I'm just saying to her, you don't know the Scriptures and where you worship isn't sanctioned by God. No, he doesn't back off from that at all. But he points her back to the Scriptures and he says, verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and what? It now, now it's happening. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Folks, do we understand that true worship is not tied to a specific geographical location, nor is it involved or tied to ceremony and ritual? Now the reason I'm saying that is because the overwhelming number of people do think that worship is tied to ceremony and ritual. Am I right about that? you got the Roman Catholic Church. I've heard, I've, I've heard laws people, they go in, they'll talk about that service and they'll say... It was wonderful. It was so full of godly ritual and pageantry and materialism and gold and silk. Look at this! And we can worship in a Roman Catholic church anywhere, but if we really want to get to the essence of true worship, I have to get in a plane and go to what city? i got to go to Rome. And i got to walk on my knees up those steps and kiss Peter's toe and do penance and give money. Or as a Muslim, they can worship in any mosque anywhere in the world, but if they really want true worship, they got to go where? they got to go to Mecca. And only the wealthy can do that. There's synagogues all over the place, but if I really want true worship, i got to go to Jerusalem. That's where the temple's at. And the ritualism and the pageantry, it's all there. Folks, do we understand that true worship is not ultimately tied to a geographical location or ceremony? Why do I say that? Because our Lord says that. Folks, in verse 23, <clears throat> what type of people is God seeking to worship Him? He is looking for true worshipers who worship the Father, how? In spirit and truth. 
And the Father is continually searching for people to worship Him in that way. Folks, what is He saying to this woman? you got to worship God according to truth. It's got to be divinely sanctioned, right? But that truth must be combined with something happening in your heart. True worship is spirit, right? It's our spirit. It's our inner man. It's in our soul. It's in our very essence of who we are. It is spirit and truth. Why does it have to be that way? Because of verse 24. God is what? Folks, God is spirit. The eternal God has no body. Now the Son took on a human what? But the eternal God has no body. When it talks about His arm being the right arm, or His feet being there... God's just speaking to us in ways we can understand. He's trying to communicate who He is with terms that we as physical creatures can understand. And folks, if God is spirit, then it is of necessity that if I'm going to worship God as spirit, I must worship Him in my what? in my spirit. Does everybody see that? And it must be worship that is in agreement with the truth. Not apart from the truth. Now today, I think there are two extreme things that are being debated today. One is, well, we have the truth we're, 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 we're going to stand for the truth, but our hearts aren't engaged in it. We're just standing for the truth. We're standing for the doctrine. We're fighting for all that. But when it comes to our worship, our hearts are not engaged in it at all. We think that true worship consists of holding on to a right set of doctrine. But our hearts don't need to be engaged in it. Nothing needs to go on inside. That's the way Nicodemus was, right? And then there's this other extreme that says, we don't have to worry about the truth. We're just excited because our hearts are engaged in it. I mean, people are here and they're really engaged. They're lifting up their hands and they're singing and... Look at them. Their whole body is engaged in this. And when we see that, we assume their heart is engaged. But it's not according to truth. Folks, we got to worship God how? 
in spirit and truth. And folks, you know that because we've been studying the book of Ephesians and it says to be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in your heart. In your heart. It's not enough to know about the fruit of the Spirit. Kindness. You need to worship Him in your heart being kind. It's not enough to say, I love you. You've got to love from the what? From the heart. You've got to engage your heart. And the only way you're going to engage your heart is if you're born again. And what we have today is many people walking an aisle or praying a prayer and they're not engaging their heart because they don't know their thirst. They want the fire insurance, but they don't want the source of the problem removed in their life. They don't want to be conformed in the image of Christ because they think they're just what? They're just fine. This woman knew she wasn't fine because true worship, this Samaritan woman, he's telling her, has to be the condition of your heart. And folks, people today are still consumed with locality and ceremony. Hi, I'm Frank Jones from... Faith Memorial Baptist Church. I'd like to take a few moments of your time and talk to you about the Lord. Next words out of their mouth. I go to church. Fill it in. I go to so-and-so Baptist Church. I go to the Roman Catholic Church. I go to St. Mary's. I go to the woods. Now folks, God does ordain in the truth to gather in as a people, doesn't He? But the issue, when I say I want to talk to you about the Lord, I'm not saying the issue is what church you go to, at least not at this point. I'm interested in what's where? Going on inside of you. Or they'll say, well, I go to this church because it has such and such programs. I go to this church because when I leave, I really feel good. But what I want to know is, where is your spirit? What's going on in your heart? Because true worship is in your inner man and the truth dwelling in that inner man and being worked out in your life. And you must be born again for that to happen. You must be saved. You can use whatever words. You can say, you've got to have living water. You, got to say, you can say this, you've got the bread of life. You can use all kinds of phrases and descriptions. <clears throat> but you must have Christ inside of you. To be sincere in worship is not enough. You can be both sincere 
and ignorant in your worship like this woman was. So how do you think she responded? Well, she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. And when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. In other words, folks, can I put it, can I put it in a vernacular today? I don't really know everything you're saying and I'm not sure I agree with it. But I do know this. I do know that when the Christ comes, He'll set everything right. That's what she that's what that's how she responds. And Jesus says to her <laughs> an amazing thing. By the way, you can't say this. Only he can say this. He said to her, I who am speaking to you, I am. I am who you, you're asking. I have come to tell you all things. And I am from above. You are from beneath. As I visualize this in my mind, I, I get goosebumps just thinking about our Lord dealing with this woman. Does He just dismiss her? Does He demand full understanding of everything He's saying at that point? No. But what she is understanding is significant. Folks, I want to ask you this morning, have you had your soul's thirst satisfied from Christ? I'm not asking for ceremony, whether you read your Bible or not. I'm not asking if you pass out so many tracts. I'm not asking if you dress right, look right. I'm not asking if you're a moral person. I'm not asking you by the church that you attend. I'm not asking any of those things. I'm not asking if the order of service is like you like it, or if the decor is like you want it or if the building that you're meeting in is exactly the type of building that you would desire to meet in, all of that, all of that ultimately is nothing. I'm asking, have you had living water in your soul so that you no longer thirst for any other God You no longer thirst for any other place to go to get your needs, your soul's needs met. You've gone to Him. 
And when He meets your soul, He gives you life. And it's like bubbling, living water. A rebirth, a life. That is, will carry you from the moment of that birth into eternal life, into eternity. Do you know Him? If you don't know Him, I beseech you, in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God today. Because today is the day of your salvation. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't do it. Don't put up your objections. Don't take comfort in your doubts. Don't take comfort in the fact that you don't understand everything. Come to Christ. What you do understand from the Scripture, obey it and come to Him. Let's pray.